Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Not a dividend. It's a tale of two pawns. Now, your losses are on someone else's balance sheet. Generally speaking, airdrops are kind of pointless anyways. Um, I named trading firms who are very involved. Um, I like that ETH is the ultimate puzzle. DeFi protocols are the antidote to this problem. All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Chopping Block. Every couple of weeks, the four of us get together and give the industry insider's perspectives on the topics of the day. So um, I, first, I want you to apologize. We're starting a little bit late uh, because Tarun is very late. late. He was very late. Um, he wanted to say something to everybody for being late. Tarun, please take the floor. All I have to say is uh, I, I do apologize for the late start. But, you know, sometimes thinking about time too much can make you go crazy. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. The most Tarun apology ever. Okay, great. thanks, Tarun. Um, all right, let's, quick intros. Uh, so first, we got Tom, the DeFi Maven and Master of Memes. Uh, next up, we have Tarun, the GigaBrain and Grand Poobot Gauntlet, who is perpetually late. Uh, next, we have Laura Shin, the uh, self-proclaimed journalist and the CEO of the show. Uh, and then we have myself, I'm a Sieb, head hype man at Dragonfly. Uh, there was all, no alliteration there. Come there on. was no... Well, the, last time we had this big drama about whether she was actually a journalist or not, and she... Claimed that she was, and we mean? said, "Of course, I'm a journalist." <laughs> okay, all right. Moving on. I, I, that's what I said. I said that you said that you're a journalist, and so we can, we can in say the journalist title. and author. Hello, yes, journalist and author. Oh, published author. Very, very impressive. Um, anyway, the uh, the three of us are early stage investors in crypto, but I want to caveat: nothing we say here is investment advice, legal advice, or even life advice. Okay, so we're, we're starting a little bit late. So let's go ahead and jump into the meat of it. The big story of the week has been the sanctions on Tornado Cash. So quick. Backstory, Tornado Cash, it's a privacy protocol slash mixer on Ethereum. Um, at the time, it's been basically the largest privacy solution on Ethereum. It's also the thing that most hacked funds end up getting washed through Tornado or mixed through Tornado. So um, last week, we saw uh, Treasury uh, and the Office for Foreign Asset Control, also called OFAC. Uh, they issued the first ever sanctions against a smart contract. So it was not Tornado Cash, the company. It was not the people who are involved in Tornado Cash. But rather, the sanctioned entities include Tornado Cash, quote unquote, which is not a legal entity. It's just the name of a project. Um, and then specifically, the list of a certain number of contracts in Tornado Cash, which are mostly on Ethereum. Now, Tornado Cash actually has other contracts on other chains. So Tornado Cash exists on BSC. It exists on Arbitrum. They were apparently not sanctioned. Um, but the Ethereum contracts itself were sanctioned. So this is the first time we've ever seen this. We have seen another Mixer gets sanctioned. So there's another mixer called Blender, which got sanctioned a while back, but it was a legal entity and the people who were involved with the legal entity. This is the first time we've ever seen this. This is not a person. This is not a company. This is a, con a set of smart contracts and a general project that has been sanctioned by OFAC. And so in response to these sanctions, we saw an enormous amount of responses from the crypto community, huge pushback. Uh, lots of people, one, declaring their solidarity with Tornado Cash. Um, Tornado Cash immediately started getting blocked from a bunch of their uh, vendors. So Alchemy shut off their uh, API access. Same thing with, um, what was the other one that, that I think? Infura. Infura, Infura also yeah. shut them off. Um, their 
their uh, governance forum was taken down. Uh, the Discord was deleted. Um, so and the GitHub was mm-hmm. completely erased. The GitHubs of the founders. The also. GitHubs yes. of the founders. It's anyone who contributed anyone to the Tornado yeah. Cash GitHub. Yeah. Yeah. Their account deleted. So their accounts were completely erased from GitHub. Even for non-Tornado Cash contributions, they are just wiped off the face of the earth. And we've also seen one of the co-founders, Alexei Pertsev, who is based in, uh, he's a Russian citizen, but he was in Amsterdam at the time. He was arrested in Amsterdam. We still don't know what the charges are. And uh, FOID, which is the, um, uh, the enforcement authority in uh, the Netherlands has not said clearly what the charges are, uh, but he's, he's still currently under arrest. Um, we've had a bunch of commentary from Coin Center, who's preparing to challenge the sanctions as well as the EFF. Uh, it's, it's, been, it's been really crazy to see this stuff playing out in real time. Nobody really knows what's going on. Soon after that, there was what's called a dusting attack where um, some person, I, I think there's some, uh, somebody on Twitter proclaimed that they were going to do this. They sent 0.1 ETH from Tornado Cash to a bunch of well-known docs addresses. So including people like Shaq uh, and Justin Sun, they all received 0.1 ETH. And as a result, uh, a lot of pri- uh, uh, compliance solutions that are supposed to pick up on people who are engaging in interactions with Tornado Cash, which of course is now sanctioned and so very not okay, um, they were now suddenly getting blocked from a lot of things that use uh, uh, Chainalysis or TRM. So for example, Ave is now blocking people who've interacted with Tornado Cash. The front end. Um, the front end, sorry, the front end. The front end of Ave, as well as the front end of some other protocols, started blocking people who have uh, addresses that have interacted with Tornado Cash. And so we're starting to see this broad ripple effect of what happens when the biggest player, which is, or the, the biggest tool, which is sanctions, starts to hit and come up against the concepts of decentralization and, and, and DeFi. So what are you guys' thoughts on what we've seen with the Tornado Cash sanctions? Well, you guys should start because you invested in Tornado Cash. So I feel like we should. Maybe start with you know their story more closely than probably Laura or I do. Well, we 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 know the team fairly well, and we and we do own some torn tokens. The the team broadly, I mean, the the, the surprising thing, and, and this is public. I mean, at this point, you know, Roman and, and Alexei have, have shared this already. Is that um, you know nobody nobody from OFAC really interacted with the tornado team about any of this. There was there was no prior notice from Treasury that hey, we're you guys are under investigation, and. Um, if you, if you remember, actually, Tornado Cash, so one, they have a compliance tool on the front end that allows you basically like the equivalent of a view key uh, for Monero, where basically you can, you can basically show somebody, look, here is my Tornado Cash address. You can generate a report that basically shows you, look, here's the source of funds. Here's where I got it from. But you can selectively disclose this to people you want to disclose it to rather than disclose it to everybody. Um, and then second, they also, uh, I think it was like in, in April, they started themselves enforcing on their front end, because obviously the protocol is decentralized, so they have no control over the protocol, which is one of the core points about Tornado Cash. When well, they clear. burned access to every function except deposit and withdrawal. Yes. So like the owners of all functions were like gone, so you can't, you really can't change anything. Exactly. And so this, this may be an important point that I, I didn't uh, touch on uh, deeply enough. So the big difference between Tornado Cash and something like Blender, the Blender was run by a company. Like if, to, if the company gets deleted, Blender was gone. There was no more Blender. Tornado Cash is an entirely decentralized system of smart contracts that are completely autonomous. No more human intervention is needed for Tornado Cash to run. So Tornado Cash really just is a bunch of code that lives on the blockchain. And um, when they when they so for for the, the the founders now they you know they they did own the the domain and the website and the domain got seized as well. Um, the um, the website they were blocking on their website uh, any sanctioned addresses from interacting with Tornado Cash. So ironically, they, they kind of did what they could for uh, trying to mitigate the degree to which bad actors could use Tornado Cash. But ultimately, 
once you create decentralized code that anybody can use, well, anyone can use it. Right? The, the blockchain doesn't have the ability, unless it's voted in by governance, to be able to discriminate which actors can and cannot use the, the blockchain. And so in some way, the, the question in my mind that this raises is, does this mean that basically privacy is kind of doomed as a category? Because the reason why Tornado Cash got hit is that that was what the biggest and high-profile hacks ended up using. They ended up using Tornado Cash. And so North Korea and the Lazarus Group, when they're hacking you know, the Ronin Bridge and some of these other players, they went through Tornado Cash in order to try to withdraw the funds. And now that Tornado Cash is no longer viable for that, there will be the next thing that they use. Which was some lightning service. Is that right? Uh, yeah, there was some like random lightning service that got the proceeds of a re the Curve Finance hack. Oh, really? So mm. the Curve Finance hack took place after the Tornado Cash hack. And um, I guess the attacker sent it to this like, there's this like lightning service where you can send ETH to an ETH contract and then relay to Bitcoin via lightning. It's much more expensive than using like REN. But REN theoretically was centralized because like Alameda owned most of the nodes running it. I think they actually announced they're decentralizing today, probably mainly because Alameda is a kind of easy target, let's say, for OFAC, given that a lot of people are US citizens who work there. But uh, I think there's sort of an interesting thing of like what the alternatives are uh, showing up. I'm not sure privacy is dead as a category in the sense yeah. that, in fact, it just motivates certain people more. I think there's this weird problem where Certainly, the funding for privacy may privacy projects may initially go down, but there might ironically be kind of like a second wind where people are like, "Oh, we feel more motivated." Now, the real question is like, are the developers who are actually good at writing privacy software, which you know, as we've learned from the zk world, is really like five people and maybe four of them are Sybils. You know, I, I think like there's really not that many people who are extremely, extremely good at and careful at writing some of this type of code because it's, you know, if you make any mistakes, you have things like the Zcash infl inflation bug. And so like, you know, you, you really have to be, you know, if, if normal crypto smart contracts are measure 100 times cut once, uh, you know, writing like privacy code is measure a million times cut once. And so like, you know, I think it's actually, it's hard to find those people who care about it or, or are good enough actually to implement this stuff. But usually those people are motivated by non-financial incentive. And this is actually kind of an increase in that. So I would actually not be surprised if we see way more things happen from Anons who are actually just people who... Maybe. I think the, the problem is that like privacy requires a lot of R&D work, right? Like, for it's sure. Not, I'm sorry? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like it, it's, it's not something that you can really easily spin together on nights and weekends. You know, like you really yeah. need a lot of dedicated energy and, and time and, and a strong team. And for a lot of the people who can do it, like they have, been, they have really high opportunity costs. So I think without consistent funding, I think it is actually really hard. Now that being said, like you know, if you look at if you look at the privacy coins after the Tornado Cash sanctions, they actually didn't go down. Um, Monero and Zcash were basically unperturbed. Even Railgun, which is like a kind of Tornado Nova copy thing, like it dipped a little bit and then it came back. And so I think the market seems to be seeing this as like, okay, this is just Tornado Cash. Yeah, but, I, I actually asked Jerry Brito about this on my show. Mm -hmm. That was my last question. Like, does he think privacy is going to be the next thing regulators go after in general? He was like, no. Yeah, so. I think the, the reality is that look, regulators are not thinking that deeply. They're just like, look, Tornado Cash bad, North Korea bad. So right. yeah, let's put the two together. And I was just struck by like how 
sloppy everything has been so far. Like, I feel like the Treasury really fucked up here. Like, um, specifically, listing the Ethereum deployments of Tornado Cash, not the other instances. Uh, listing every single pool that was used, not just the 100 ETH pool that North Korea used. Like, you know, is North Korea going to use the 0.1 ETH pool? Probably not. And yet it was banned anyway. Um, the fact that Tornado Cash did have this compliance tool, even though like, well, why do we care about privacy? Like, why is this a problem? Because somebody can get basically fresh ETH and use it can, can use it to cash out. Um, well, if I can go to an exchange and show them the compliance tool and say, hey, here's my original address, here's a new address, you can sort of you know, stop that sort of cash out process. And so everything about it just didn't really make any sense. I don't think they really understood what they were doing. Jerry also brought up the point that how is a smart contract supposed to defend itself? Other sanctioned entities can defend themselves. They can, they can um, you know, start a, a lawsuit. What is a smart contract supposed to do? And so the whole thing just feels like they didn't really know what they're doing. And I feel like there's going to be a big legal challenge. And even, you know, we, we'll still find out about what's happening with, with Alexi. But, you know, the fact that there, been, there have not been charges brought yet. The Dutch police claim that they're launching their, their own investigation unrelated to the U.S. seems kind of sus. Like, the entire thing just feels very kind of amateur hour and, and really disappointing. Yeah, I don't know if I agree with that. Like, I feel like watching this whole thing, what I'm seeing is um, the same issues that I see with security regulation in the U.S., where I feel like the crypto community has its views about, you know, what decentralization means, what what open source code means, like, um, and they kind of have these certain distinctions that they're making, right? But that's like the industry. I mean, when Gary Gensler came in as, you know, that CC chair, people thought like, oh, he gets blockchain. He's going to kind of view things the way we do. And yet he understands the technology and he has a totally different view, right? Like to the point where the SEC seemed to imply that Ether was no longer a security and then he seems to be or, kind or of no back longer track. a commodity. Okay. Or no longer no a problem. Longer now security. it's a security. Yeah. Oh, no, oh okay, yeah. Sorry, sorry. Before Gary Gensler. Oh, yeah. Yeah, sorry. yeah. And then now he's kind of implying that it is a security. So um, I feel like what I see time and again is like, oh, like even when I read like, for instance, you know, the New York Times or, like, the Wall Street Journal or whatever, they'll see, say things like, oh, there was this new crypto legislation introduced, and it's very friendly to the industry, meaning, like, the industry, um, you know, had a lot of input, and they shaped the bill. And, like, you guys all, because you're part of the industry, you're like, well, that's how it is. Like, you know, these are commodities, and blah, blah, blah. And, but, like, as we've seen, SEC regulators will look at something that you guys consider decentralized and be like, actually, it's really, you know— identifiable people. It's really centralized. And so I feel like it's the same thing again. I just want to add on about the the Dutch authorities. So you're right. We don't know what the charges are and stuff. But um, I interviewed somebody who used to work at OFAC and FinCEN. And he was saying that essentially we just don't know all the facts about what happened, right? And so it could be that there really are things that are illegal in the Netherlands or whatever jurisdiction this person falls under that, you know, are, give the authorities a legitimate reason to, to arrest him, you know, in the U.S. where we have, like, stuff about free speech and, and everything, you know, we have a bunch of, like, U.S. lawyers opining on what this all means. But really, it, like, none of that really applies to this person as far as I understand. So, well, yeah, you, you're absolutely right about Alexi. We don't know what the charges are. And once we learn the charges, we might be like, oh, shit, those are serious charges right. that maybe are incidental to his relationship with Tornado Cash, right? And, and you're absolutely right. Dutch system, I don't know, I don't know anything about the Dutch system. Um, but we I, I think we are in very good position to be able to criticize OFAC because Yeah, I mean, I'm not I'm not necessarily disagreeing with you so much as just pointing out that um, you know, like Tom had this very strong opinion. Oh, they definitely fucked up. 
it may be that they very well understood what the implications would be, but were, you know, confident that they could make the argument that this was the right step. That's all I'm saying. I'm just saying, like, you guys definitely view it all as being one way, but they might have a completely different interpretation of everything. This whole thing, in in my mind, is also very bizarre because it just parallels so much, like, the crypto wars of the 90s um, and the case law that was presented there and the establishment of code as free speech and so the you know the whole open source privacy movement and i feel like we're just replaying this again even though we've sort of already seen this happen you know 30 years in the past right i mean yeah maybe i mean these but, were the same arguments that were made of why encryption should be illegal yes. yeah, why, do you, why are you encrypting stuff but like, don't you have something to hide doesn't, doesn't north korea encrypt stuff at least in the u.s as far as i understand you know regulations around financial things are like way stricter than around other things so that's like I know I mean, people. Encryption all... was financial regulation, right? Like, what what were people? What was the pro argument for encryption? Was it credit cards? That's the oh. thing we need to encrypt sending over the internet, right? And it's like, okay, this bad stuff that people do about sending illegal secrets and you know whatever I don't know whatever nonsense they were uh, obsessed with at that time. That's the collateral damage that we're willing to accept in order to allow for good economic activity to go on unperturbed with encryption. And oh, it, was, it was also very serious because they were um, munitions. And so it was an arms control export. And so obviously, you know, uh, smuggling, you know, munitions out of the country is also extremely illegal. Um, and yet, you know, that was sort of changed. Yeah. And it took, it took people who were, one, obsessed with privacy for anything to change because most normal people don't care or don't even understand what's going on. And second, it took people who were willing to do so at personal risk. Because at that time, the developers behind PGP took personal risk in creating technology that they knew was illegal in the U.S., right? And actually, you know, Adam Back, for whatever misgivings I might have about him, right. he was, he was, he was a, a true cypherpunk and a rebel. I think it was, wasn't him who, like, had RSA he, in his uh, signature. On his T-shirt or something. Yeah, I think, yeah. It was, yeah. I think it was his email signature was the RSA algorithm, which was technically illegal. It was, right. it was illegal to, as, as a munition, uh, as, you know, something that's supposed to, only the military is supposed to have these mathematical formulas, which is a ridiculous concept on its face. And now the idea is that this set of code is illegal. Now, yeah. I mean, look, did they say that? No, they didn't say it. They said some vague thing about Tornado Cash and these Ethereum addresses, which are not even all the addresses of Tornado Cash, um, which, is, which is my point is that what, what they're infringing on is a really important, very difficult conversation that as a, like, we need to grapple with these conversations, not have answers handed from on high. Right? Yeah, and the, I'm not saying that I... Uh, don't agree with you guys. Like, I'm somebody who does consider privacy super important. Um, I find it weird when people don't. But I'm just saying that I feel like, you know, very swiftly, the community kind of had a very certain take on everything. And I was like, well, we don't know their reasoning. We Like, they might come out with a lot of reasons why this was the right move. That's all I'm just trying to say. Yeah, you, you may think they definitely bungled it and they'd be, be like, no, this is exactly what we intended. Yeah, knowing the you know, average level of competence and intelligence of like, you know, most of these, uh, you know, government officials, I'm, I would be very surprised if they had, you know, a really good argument as to like, why was this the move? I think it's just like, you have a hammer and this is where you're going to use instead of, and you know, from their perspective, it's like, what are they really losing? Um, right. Like, it's like a classic. And that's, that's, you know, you look at all these, these protocols and these companies that have sort of abandoned tornado cash. And it's like, yeah, is our Microsoft lawyer is going to stand up for tornado? No, it's, it's extremely high risk, very low reward. So he's going to get rid of it. Um, and the tornado, the Treasury probably did a very similar calculation. Yeah, then you saw who's the who's the legislator who was like, finally we stamped out you know Tornado Cash, which is owned by North Korea. Oh, it was the Secretary was of Blinken. State. Yeah. Blinken, yeah, yeah, Blinken, Blinken, who yeah. claimed that Tornado Cash was, was created by North Korea, which is yeah. 
which is like this whole thing is just like this boogeyman, you know, the, and even the title, the title of the, of the post is U.S. Treasury Sanctions Notorious Virtual Currency Mixer Tornado Cash. We're just like, oh my God. Like it's, it's just all designed to create this like fear. It was like, what, what is Tornado Cash? You know, it's a, it's a privacy protocol that some bad people use. When you sanction this thing, they will find the next thing to use. And are we going to sanction that thing next? Right? Like yeah. the next hack is going to go somewhere. It might be some lightning thing. It might be they wrap through Monero and they go into their Monero bridge and they use Monero or they use Zcash next or they use Ren. And there will always be something that bad people use. And is the theory that we're going to operate with is that we'll whack them all one at a time until one that's not sympathetic shows up and actually fights us. Yeah, but I have a question. Like what if the government comes out and is like, Okay, here are the ways that Tornado Cash was actually centralized. And it's like some kind of nuanced argument about, I, I don't know, I'm going to, you know. The team then, is extremely careful to avoid components of centralization. Um, I mean, they burned the admin keys. They, they didn't run like a relayer. It was really just, you know, you build the code. They didn't even deploy it. There was a deployment ceremony. So I just, I, I'm, I'm open to the idea that maybe there's more to it. As so then the, who deployed the, it? But that's the thing. They didn't sanction the people. If you sanction the people, then it's like, okay, there's some argument about it. Yeah. the people are so, responsible. So, they didn't sanction the people. Uh, if they sanction the people, then I agree. Well, they didn't okay, know. Uh, didn't clearly, up. if the Secretary of State thought it was North Korea, they didn't even know who the right people were. On <laughs> no, they, it's, they relied it's very on GitHub. hard not to know who the people they are. Relied I mean, they're on the GitHub. three biggest contributors on GitHub. Yeah, 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 I know. I'm just saying, like, uh, you know, I don't think they did that much. They clearly did not not bubble up all their due diligence. Yeah, I would yeah. say the one thing, though, that's important. Yeah, so re- with regard to a ceremony, ceremonies are when basically you have a group of people who each contribute part of the randomness to the initial creation of like the initial genesis block that is used to be the initial point of random number generation for for like a privacy protocol. So you can think of it as like no one person contributed the initial genesis, oh. kind of like in the Satoshi has a famous quote. It's actually many people contributed part of it and it got aggregated. In. So they did that, but there was also a deployment ceremony. So they basically used create two and said, hey, you can do this transaction and it's going to deploy a component of Tornado ah, Cash. Okay, so yeah, they didn't yeah. even yeah, do that. There's like so, 30 contracts that were deployed by random people. Right, right, right. And there was oh. no incentive to do it. People just did it. Right. So, um, yeah. I mean, th- this whole thing, like, I mean, clearly this is going to be a fight. And the thing that's frustrating about this is that, and this is part of the imbalance of power between the government and individuals, is that, you know, when, when OFAC takes a step, even if that step is miscalculated, it's, it's, it's you know, a breach of their, um, of their uh, abilities, right? Or what they're constitutionally allowed to do. Um, the amount of work it takes to undo that step, right? The amount of legal expenses, the amount of time, the amount of energy, the amount of economic destruction that happens, it's hugely asymmetric, right? It's going to take years before anything happens on any of this, right? Obviously, we'll, we'll eventually learn the charges. We'll get more details about what happened and why. And, you know, but, but the... The amount of work that it takes to, to push the government back one step is enormous relative to what it took for them to take the step. And that's part of the frustration of something like this. And that's part of why regulation by enforcement sucks. Like, that's why it's so much better to regulate through conversations so that people can actually make decisions as a collective about what is the right way to treat privacy. How do we think about financial privacy? Is the idea that, look, you don't have the right to financial privacy if bad actors are also sharing and that, pri- that financial privacy with you. Is that the idea? Is, like, what's the theory here? I mean, the, the problem, and maybe this is to Laura's point, is like, you know, most of the time, I think if the government sees a sanctioned country that, you know, 
we've had sort of mal relationships with for decades anywhere near anything it's just becomes a like stop everything type of decision now there's collateral damage in that of course but that is the cost they're willing to pay for enforcing kind of this type of thing and like i i I agree that there's a nuanced argument against it but i do not think the government needs is has been kind of told to have a care about a nuanced argument. Their their regulators effectively lay down the law of like anything North Korea has to be kind of bludgeoned. And no, I that's it. That. I understand. But this is clearly like a very different categorical difference, right? With like what they usually do. They usually sanction a foreign person or a foreign company, which makes sense, right? Like, okay. All North they're Korea doing is, is taking that framework company. and just hoping that it works. Well it's like yeah. imagine that nor imagine that they sanctioned like literally a code base. They didn't they didn't literally sanction the code base because they just said tornado cash which people assumed meant the code base, and so GitHub deleted their code base. Imagine that they sanctioned this code North Korea uses for their hacking efforts, right? And it's like some, you know, I don't know, some disassembler or something like that. They say, North Korea uses this. And if we, if we take this offline, North Korea is going to be screwed. Right? I mean, we do do that, by the way, with hardware... Export restrictions and IP. So I, I would argue that you're 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 not totally well, like I'm, code I'm, I'm, is free speech, but hardware gates are not free speech, which is like a funny distinction. Okay, okay. Uh, export fair. restrictions on hardware is actually quite different, even though it's understand. the same code. It can be the same code burned into an FPGA, and it will <laughs> it will be illegal as hardware, but not as code. Hmm. I think that's I think that is a reasonable distinction to make, though. But I but maybe I don't have a good argument why. But I, I see your point. I'm just saying, like, they draw the line arbitrarily already to me. So it's just like they just, it's turtles all the way down once you cut it the line. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think uh, now people are talking like, you know, what is sort of the next shoe to drop, right? Like, um, are validators supposed to process transactions from sanctioned entities? Um, you know, is Ethereum supposed to exist and process transactions from sanctioned entities? Like, you know, it is, you know, turtles all the way down when you sort of look at the stack and wonder, like, where does it sort of stop? Yeah, it gets interesting when you look at the questions of after the switch to proof of stake, then like, is Coinbase going to, um, you know, process a blog that has uh, interactions with Tornado Cash in it? Or I mean, it, like, it just gets really, really weird quickly. I, I don't know. Per, so this may be a segue to our next uh, topic. But I just feel like I keep on learning so many different things about, um, you know, what things will be like post-merge that really call into question certain fundamental elements of Ethereum and make me wonder like, oh, is this really going to be a good thing or is this going to end up in creating a lot of, um, you know, potential uh, threats to Ethereum? Uh, I don't know. There, there's just... What are you thinking of? Um, so this obviously is like the most recent one, just those questions around um, validators and stuff. but. Um, you know, this centralization vector around like uh, liquidity, uh, staking derivatives um, and Lido and stuff like I, I did a big show on this and I kind of was surprised that like there wasn't a little bit more alarm about it because just as a journalist listening, I'm like, whoa, uh, this seems potentially quite bad. Um, and then now, you know, I'm, I'm learning a little bit more about MEV. I don't know a ton about it yet, uh, enough to really give an opinion but I can definitely say that given the range of things that I've heard, there's like really good points being made against institutionalizing MEV and like um, just making it uh, something that is an accepted part of Ethereum. And so I don't know, there's just like a number of ways where I'm like, whoa, uh, shit so, might so, go so, down. So maybe maybe I, I will talk about yes, this. Yes, I had a feeling Tarun <laughs> would have an opinion. Uh, yeah, so I think the, the first thing is Ethereum already accepts MEV. 
there's just no, there's no, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. They've in fact centralized it off chain. And there's, you know, in spite of the fact that that's been tried to be decentralized by multiple attacking auctions, we've centralized to like 70 to 80% of hash power in one. So the first thing is it's already there. The question is whether it gets shared, the revenue gets shared amongst all validators or not. But actually, but some other people would say that another question would be, should we do more to minimize it rather than just accept it? Like, so there's like a couple there's a couple that. things. I think the first thing is that every mitigation mechanism has a cost. So anything that's doing something like say fair ordering either is more centralized. So like the chain link arbitrum version of the world has a centralized sequencer effectively, um, or like at least a centralized off-chain relay. Um, the or it adds a huge amount of latency or kind of like changes to the UX that would be unacceptable to most users or developers. Like you just have to wait a long time. You have no clue what other transactions are being included, like a batch auction. The second thing is, there's sort of what I would call my folk Shannon theorem, which is like, anytime you actually have any uncertainty in a transaction processing mechanism, there's always some amount of minimum extractable uh, value from people who are processing the transaction. And when you force people to go from the environment of like, hey, I submit a transaction to someone who then afterwards is like very low latency with like all the other parties I have to interact with. Then it's like, okay, well, there's that the fact that's very low latency means the net extractable amount is a lot lower. But now that we're like, hey, we want to actually just send packets or I want to send transactions over the internet, which has tons of reliability issues. You can't guarantee that the latency is low. You're obviously going to, the higher the uncertainty, the higher the extractable value. So there's no real way around that. That's just like the laws of physics. The, the, I guess the second thing is that there are ways of mitigating. And most of the ways of mitigating actually involve in making the auction better or making the economic process better, not like these fair ordering things that change the security assumptions, use new cryptography, like that maybe is not ready for, for prime time yet. There's trusted hardware. Which gets break broken in every other month. Like I'm just waiting for like all these SGX things to break at some point. Well, yeah. and, and protocols all are also redesigning themselves over time to like reduce MEV opportunities. Right. So yeah, I, I think there's going to end up being like we're we're just converging to whatever the information theory, theoretic yeah. minimum. You let me, can extract let me is. paint the intuition that you're trying to convey here because I think it might not be intuitive to most people um, why MEV is intrinsic to blockchains. So MEV is basically the idea is like imagine imagine you're running an exchange. Okay, but you're you're the exchange operator, and as the exchange operator, you can ultimately decide what happens when, as long as nobody is obviously cheated. And when you're a totally centralized exchange, obviously nobody can really tell who's getting cheated, and so people are just sending you stuff, and you're like, oh, you know what, this one goes here, and this one's going to go here, and then boom, I'm going to go in between, and I'm going to make some money. Um, now, the tighter that the bounds are, like let's say that everybody is you know uh, coordinating, everybody can actually see who's doing what trades when. Now it's harder for you to cheat, but as long as it's not instant. The moment two people send you a trade, right? If two people send you a trade and you can decide which one goes first and you can decide when your trade goes in, there's always some MEV. MEV is just the ability to control how the order book plays out. And um, Tarun's point is that it's impossible to get rid of. You can make it better, you can make it faster, you can do whatever. But as long as somebody runs the exchange, they can always do something to make a, even a little bit of profit. Right now, in, in Ethereum, you can make a ton of profit because there's seven second blocks or 12 second blocks, basically, which means that there's a lot of time for you to go in and reorder stuff and do a lot of nonsense. I yeah. also, 
think people give flashbots for saying, oh, flashbots is like causing MEV or something like that. I think the mental model for flashbots is sort of, it's, you ever seen like the, the hamster nab episode of The Wire, you know, where it's like they sort of sanction a portion of the city to like basically sell drugs. And I feel like flashbots is sort of like that in my mind. Like this is going to happen <laughs> anyway. So we may as well have an orderly market for it as opposed to, uh, you know, what pe- pe- people previously did, which was like, you know, bribe buyers, do co-location, like crazy gas spikes, stuff like that. Yeah, and so so actually, the history of this was that these probabilistic gas auctions led to people spam. Instead of saying, like, I want to be after this transaction, because I'm front-running or back-running, you instead would just spam the validator with a million copies of the same transaction, with the gas just a little bit below the transaction you want to be after. And if there's many competitors, everyone was spamming, and you had this like huge spam war against the network. And it just like basically was non-productive usage because most of the block would be filled with these failed transactions that were people trying to spam. By moving that separate from the production of a block via the flashbots auction, you actually at least made it much more orderly for the average user, the non-strategic user, the dumb user, the user who just like opens MetaMask, hits send, not the user who's like sitting and actually like monitoring the mempool and, and interacting with these things directly. So the, the proposal... And Ethereum, that is the controversial one that you're talking about, is this notion of what's called proposer-builder separation. So the idea is that builders, or block builders, people who are taking sequences of transactions that they see, uh, ordering them, executing them, and giving a proof that like they executed those transactions correctly, they then bid. They say, here's how much I'm willing to pay for this block, or here's how much I want to get paid for this block. And a proposer basically takes those bids and aggregates them and then submits to a network. Now, one of the reasons this is supposed to be better, at least in, in some sort of more economic sense, is that if there actually is a competitive market for block builders, people who are like trying to like rearrange sequences and like find the optimal block to build, uh, then censorship becomes very expensive because you have to pay significantly more than the maximum price that a block builder is willing to offer for many blocks to, to effectively do the censorship attack. And so the idea of like doing this splitting actually does sort of help, but it doesn't mitigate the fact that you still have these like supply chain attacks on the the actual code base, right? Where someone puts in like the 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 meme was like OFAC guess, like the Ethereum client has like an OFAC check. So I guess the the main thing is these things are just still a little half baked to put in the protocol fully and they're not going to go in immediately. But at the end of the day, there's no way of you. The best you can do is just add in mitigating mechanisms and then actually share the revenue. The one problem in proof of work is that you actually cannot share the rep. So imagine there's revenue that's earned from from MEV. You can't actually distribute it to all miners. So like, let's say on each block, when you enter a proof of work MEV auction, whoever mined that block gets all the MEV rewards. There's no way of splitting it. And the reason for that is with hash power, you actually don't know. And this is a, a feature and a bug, depending on how you view it. You don't actually know the distribution of all miners. You don't know how much resource each miner is getting. You only approximately know it, and you're measuring that based on the difficulty adjustment of, of the blockchain. And in proof of stake, you could actually take a portion of the MEV and redistribute it to all validators as sort of a bonus for staying honest. And in some ways, that's sort of the, the the direction that's being moved in to kind of eliminate the centralization effect of sort of a flashbots auction. So I would say that the OFAC get thing got confounded with this 
thing that wants to be added. And then there's lots of FUD and people didn't bother reading like carefully any of the documentation. And so hence we got the storm on the internet. Yeah, the, the weird thing. So all this MEV stuff, Flashbot started what, early last year? Like that? Uh, I mean, I guess they were, they were informal for longer. Mm. But. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, like before that, the, the really interesting thing is that before that there was, so initially when Flashbots was first conceived, um, I was very strongly against Flashbots. We are actually investors in Flashbots now, but I was, I was yeah, very strongly us. against Flashbots. All three of us. All three of us are investors, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and uh, basically my view was that uh, I thought they were playing with fire and that the idea, like institutionalizing the idea of MEV extraction is going to make basically Wall Street and traditional enterprises be like, what the hell is going on in there? Like, you guys are just agreeing to all front run each other and steal from each other and that like anybody who's not smart enough or connected enough is just going to get destroyed. And I thought one of two things. So one, there was this trend actually of a lot of projects that were what we call accelerationist. Basically meaning they're like, this thing will eventually happen. Let's make it happen right now. And then try to create the perfect version of the eventual state. Before that point, obviously there were MEV auctions and there were there was MEV, but it was kind of a gentleman's agreement not to extract it, right? And so I remember back that in wasn't, 2017. That wasn't true on-chain, though. There are people definitely... I mean, on-chain, but in terms of the miners themselves, like, there, there, yeah. I remember in 2017, there was this famous instance, one of the first instances of MEV that was very widely known of, which was that F2 pool, during the status ICO, the status, very old school ICO back in the ICO era, um, in the status ICO, it was discovered that F2 Pool had put in one of their own transactions to basically mint uh, a bunch of, or buy a bunch of tokens in the ICO before anybody else could. And there was a huge storm about this. A bunch of people pulled their hash rate from F2 Pool. People were like, oh my God, how could you do this? You're destroying the integrity of Ethereum. And after that, the miners learned, you don't mess with blocks. It's just part of the Ethereum like immune system. There was this paper out, I think, this week. Um, I think it was like some, uh, basically actually talking about F2 pool. It was selfish money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Selfish yeah. like thing. Yeah, it's not exactly. Single block selfish money, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so F2 pool has gotten <laughs> with a handy super <laughs> yeah. But they've always been the kind of, yeah, like, they're, they're, they're famous. The bad boy. They're, they're the bad boy. Yeah, boy. they always are. Cu- they were the first ones to move from Flashbots to whatever that uh, competitor was. Eden, like, Eden, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, I feel like they're always... yeah. Yeah, they're always they are, they are, living yeah. on the bleeding edge. They are, but but I think it, it's interesting because like that that single event, every single mining pool that I'd ever met in Ethereum, they remembered that. They all knew about that event because they knew that look, you don't. There are certain things you don't mess with, and one of the things you don't mess with is you don't reorder within a block. And it was always understood that okay, a mining pool is allowed to have their own transactions at the end of a block that are non fee paying. They're just like you know do payouts and stuff and just kind of administrative stuff. But you don't mess with the internals of a block. And it was really Flashbots that started to move the Overton window of what is acceptable within Ethereum, which is that, no, MEV is a thing. These, these uh, MEV auctions are happening on-chain through PGAs. We should institutionalize them and remove the noise from the mempool and put it in a separate section for pros over here and everyone else Arguably, though, I would say that I think that it would, we would not be at the point where Ethereum actually was able to support so many different types of applications with increasingly less sophisticated users without without flashbots. And it's not like it's inaccessible. In theory, like anyone could just change their RPC and use it. So yeah. I would just say that, you know, the the main thing I, I always take a kind of I'm always surprised at is there's just always people like, oh, it's like so extractive and like nothing you you know like 
I don't really understand how you expect this thing to be an economic system and not have some type of like strat like non-strategy proofness. First of all, there's no incentive compatibility in any of this stuff as designed. Like it, it on, only at the consensus layer does anyone even care about measuring whether incentives are sort of compatible. Once you get to application layer, literally no one actually even bothers checking if their mechanism works. They just try to deploy and mint the token and get out. That's like, and if people are like that, then obviously they're going to create all these like horrible, horribly inefficient things. I remember when Artbox came out, which is like this big uh, NFT launchpad thing. They had this like horribly implemented Dutch auction where it would always start at a valuation that's lower than what all the bidders wanted. And so they basically created, they took this auction that was supposed to actually be like an orderly thing. And then they turned it into like the worst type of first price auction because everyone is like, oh, this is 50% cheaper than what I really think the value is. So I'm going to spam for this. And stuff like that, the average person who participated in an Artbox auction would have gotten zero if not for Flashbots. So I, you have to give them a lot of credit for... And look, to be clear, I totally give Flashbots credit. I mean, at this point, it's clear that we're not going back. Look at Solana. I mean, a lot of the problems on Solana happened because 100%. they didn't have an orderly mechanism they, they, and the they, fees they, they were zero. They didn't have fees, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> have but, a fee market. Wait, I, before this turns into yet another Solana bashing show, I want to ask, um, because, so again, I am still doing my research on MAV, but as far as I understand, like people are pointing out that there are certain regulations against this type of thing. And so some people are saying like, oh, this literally is kind of like illegal. So I was wondering. I, I think it's plausible that we move to proof of stake that some exchanges don't extract MAV. 100%. Like, yeah, it's it's optional now, right? Like, if you're running uh, an Ethereum uh, client, you can use MEV Boost, which is a software which basically lets you take these blocks. And I, I suspect these big, you know, like Coinbase, right? They're not going to run MEV Boost. Um, it's, it's, it's too too sketchy. So, yeah, I find that weird that, like, one group is going to be like, okay, we'll do the thing that's illegal. And then another group is like, okay, we have to abide by the law, right? Do, but that's always understand? been true in this industry. Yeah, when has that not been true? When has that not been true? <laughs> <laughs> like, come on. We were just talking about Tornado. That's the perfect <laughs> example of this. Well, wait, but Tornado, so obviously now it's sanctioned, but... I mean, unless you're a North Korean hacker, like a lot of people were just using yeah, it yeah. I mean, like, he's, for he's privacy. Being, he's being facetious. Mm. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Tornado is obviously not, sanctions are not backwards looking. Sanctions are forward Okay, looking. but so you agree that MEV boost then would be illegal? Like, not, I, no, really, it's not, not really, clearly not really, that not it would really. be illegal. It's that, I mean, if, if anything were to happen, it would probably be civil. And it's like, you're opening yourself up to lawsuits and like you're opening up to your, like it's just like, so, so the real if you're question Coinbase, is, why would you want to bother? Yeah, the real question is, does Uniswap get regulated as like a swaps dealer or like a broker dealer? Or at least if you care about US regulation. If that ever was true and like kind of like the sanctions forward looking, any future Uniswap transaction gets qualified, then I agree it's true. But right now it's like yeah, I, the, the, the government doesn't even seem to be able to, to distinguish the difference between like an LP share and a ERC-20 for taxes. Forget about for like understanding <laughs> how to redeem an LP share. Like, Yeah, no, I, I think the, the reality is that a lot of Ethereum exists in a global environment, right? A lot right. of most people who use Ethereum don't live in America. They're not Americans. Most right. human beings. The, the weird part, though, is most developers do. <laughs> a very large proportion. A large proportion. A large proportion of developers are unfortunately subject to American laws, but um, Ethereum itself is not. And you have to build Ethereum in such a way that it works no matter where you are. And the MEV is is something that just comes out of the incentives. It comes out of the game theory, right? And it kind of doesn't matter if you make MEV illegal in one country. Someone in a different country will extract MEV. I, I'll give you another example. Arguably, if the U.S. government ever said that an online ad impression, which is sort of like when you go buy a Facebook ad, 
you're buying like future right to a certain set of demographics that get a certain ad, right? It's basically a security. You could argue that it like it actually is a fucking common enterprise. Like, and it is a security. Like, if if the government really wanted to go after Facebook, like back when they cared more, they would probably have just been like ad impressions or securities. And, you know, you're a broker dealer, so like you can't front run everyone. But instead it's not, right? And like, oh, if you look at Google and Facebook, they do their own, their entire <coughs> business model is do MEV for yourself. You run the auction, you sequence when particular <coughs> bidders are bidding. And 90% of bidders use automated bidding strategies that you made as the, the company. Their, their business model is literally only MEV. At least here, it's like competitive. I like this right, idea well. of extending MEV to other, <laughs> other companies. But that is what yeah, it is. Like, like let's not, let's, 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 you know, let's call a donkey an ass when it is an ass. You know, it, it is in this case. All right. All right. You heard it here first. Facebook, the biggest MEV extractor of all time. Wow. I mean, it's the same concept. <laughs> like, I understand. I understand the point. I understand the point. I just, uh, I always, I always enjoy. I mean, it's really the fact that it's a, like a second price auction, though. I mean, you do get. More, it's not second price like, anymore. Yeah, they, uh, they literally got rid of Google. Didn't. Uh, Google sort of didn't. Go, sort of didn't. Like, yeah, some, 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 some auctions are, some aren't. Yeah. But. yeah. Um, anyway, all right. Let's move away from uh, Google and Facebook auctions. Um, so. Actually, one one of the things that I want to chat about that we we brought up before the show started, when Tarun was still not here, oh right, is um, see, aren't you we were happy talking a lot? Well, well, no, you got more bonding. We had a great discussion, yeah. and it, the listeners would have benefited, but anyway, it is really yeah, all your fault. It is really all your it. fault, Tarun. Um, Silver line. So, uh, so there's been a lot of hubbub this week in the NFT community about these exchanges that are no longer enforcing royalties. So, royalties for those who are not aware, generally, when you affect a sale of an NFT on a platform like OpenSea. Um, there's a certain percentage of each sale that goes back to the original creator. And that creator, the creator specifies what they want the royalty to be for that collection. So it turns out, and a lot of people did not know this, and I actually didn't know this until I learned it very recently, is that these royalties are not enforced at the smart contract layer. The way a lot of people talk about NFTs is like, oh, NFTs are this way that creators can get paid and blah, blah, blah. But actually, these royalties are kind of like a suggestion. It's kind of like, you know, you just sort of tape something on like your little, you know, bucket that you're, uh, busking with, and it's just like, please, suggested donation is five percent. Um, but it's up to the it's up to the actual exchange to actually enforce that. And it turns out there are a couple of exchanges. One of them is Element, and the other one is Pseudoswap that are not enforcing the royalties. And as a result, they're actually growing quite a bit in trading volume because they're cheaper than the places that enforce since, royalties. Since Tom is the real NFT degen here, I would um, I would like love a little TLDR of what Pseudoswap actually does because I actually have not really understood. I mean, I feel like that's... Oh, we, can, we can talk about it. I'm, <laughs> like, I'm like, talk about royalties. I, I, feel, I feel like the reason that they're, they've become popular is also yeah. their new mechanism on like OpenSea. Or, yeah, I think a lot yeah, of yeah. it is just the lack of royalties. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, okay. No, I think that's, so that's a portion of it. Yeah, it's, but it's, it's also... It's you can think of it as... I know you're a big NFTX fan. Um, you can think of it as basically a sort of uni v3 version of nftx where basically okay. any individual can set their own sort of curve for the nfts that they have and then they use a routing contract that aggregates over all the curves so you get better execution better per pricing. collection or like per collection okay um and lower fees um you're not doing the whole fractionalized 2c swap thing so um yeah it's just like a better cheaper place to trade you know nfts and the nft meta is trending towards floor trading and so it sort of all kind of lines up oh so you don't even care which one you get so you don't care well, like you, when you, you can actually specify. You can, it's okay. sort of like NFTX in that way. Um, okay. But it's like, hey, if you're trying to move, you know, a lot of money through an NFT collection, 
maybe you're less, you know, picky about that, and it's it's more optimized for that sort of meta within within NFTs. Um, but yes, no royalties. Yeah, I mean, it's this very weird dynamic where I feel like we wouldn't even be having this conversation had OpenSea not opted in to have royalties from in the first place. But they did, which sort of set the standard, which created this impression among everybody, including very sophisticated people, that royalties are somehow enforced on a smart contract level as opposed to just being this suggestion that exchanges choose to choose to enforce. And I think as a result, you know, it's like, well, you know, are exchanges incentivized to use royalties? Well, it's like, no, because it increases the price for, you know, their, their the assets and sort of reduces trading. Um, do users want royalties? Some do that I think want to, you know, respect creators and give them attribution, but most don't. They just want a cheap, a cheaper NFT. And so it's like, why are we even in this meta in the first place of people well, paying? Well, the, remember there was a supply side problem in 2019 and 2020 where forget about the demand side. There were just like no one you could convince who is like a relatively prominent artist to even make one of these things. And so the royalties were actually like a way of like bootstrapping the supply side before kind of, you know, the demand side came after DeFi summer. So like, I, I do think the supply side piece That's of it That's an was, interesting argument. Is yeah. that the royalties yeah. were there to bring people in at the beginning, but now the demand who is were there. Like, who were like more the prominent creators. Yeah. The creators. Yeah. 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 I mean, but this is exactly my argument of like why creators were interested in NFTs. Um, you know, Mark Cuban on my show was like, oh, I got interested when I realized I could sell tickets to Dallas Mavs games and, you know, enforce a royalty in all the resales. So, you know, creators are very interested in this. And you know, as a creator myself, I have to say that I personally would totally want to give, you know, some of my resale value over to other creators. Yeah, I, I don't want to go into the economics uh, necessarily of being a I writer. I would love but, to go into the economics of it. Oh, okay. So if you're, if like for you, for a unit of work, you make like this amount of money. Mm-hmm. For me, for a unit of work, I make like this amount of money, you know, especially with writing in particular. Sure. Um, so, and, and you, it's like super offensive. Like you, you don't even know how many people have like tweeted things at me. Like, why don't you give things away for free? And I'm like, oh, because it took me like X amount of time to make that. And like, that's what I do for a living. I mean, like, yes, people like you, like VCs, you can write for free because you make your money doing something else, but this is actually what I do to make money. Right. And this goes to my point. I was, we were discussing, discussing this while Tarun was late. I was kind of annoyed when I opened my Twitter uh, application and I see Spencer Noon. No offense to Spencer. I've never met him in person. But, you know, he's a variant fund and he tweeted something like, oh, uh, you know, when artists' songs are streamed, they shouldn't make any money because the song is effectively an advertisement for their work. And I was like, you know, I was like, <laughs> do, you, do you know any musicians? Because, like, musicians, they are much more likely to say, like, I should earn so much more for my streams. Um, they're uh, more likely to complain about the fact that, like, they kind of have to tour to make enough money. You know, it's like the actual work they do doesn't make enough, so they have to do this additional thing on top to actually make the money. And so he, you know, I just was like, and I was surprised because, you know, Jesse Walden is part of Varian Fund, and I was a little bit like, I feel like Jesse definitely knows musicians, so you guys should have talked to some to, like, understand what their world is like from a business perspective. And then I was surprised, like, Kyle Samani backed Spencer Noon up, and I was like, I just tweeted back at them. I was like, <laughs> you guys must not know any musicians. I think Jesse's married to a musician. Yeah, yeah. So that's why it surprises me. Spencer did not seem to understand the economics of being a musician. And, you know, it's like they want musicians to be, like, entrepreneurs and, like, you know, have this, like, oh, I'm going to, like, like, because Kyle's point was, oh, there's a ton of businesses where you give away the core business for free and then you charge for stuff on top. And I'm like, 
point, but a musician wants to make music and be paid for it. Not like have this whole business model that's super complicated where like they do the work, but they do that for free. And then they do this other thing to make the money. And it's like not what they want to do. That, they that want to make money. Was amazing. They want to make <laughs> money and they want to be paid. Or, sorry, they want to make music and be paid for it. Yeah. I was okay. a little bit like, and you know, I don't normally get kind of uh, emotional when I'm looking at Twitter. I'm like fascinated by the crypto discussion, but I don't normally like have a sense of personal involvement, but I have musician friends. So like, I just was like, you do not understand this world at all. But anyway. Okay. So let me give the the supervillain argument for why I think actually I'm fine with the idea of destroying royalties. So oh, here's, here's the, because you asked about the economic <laughs> argument. You asked about the economic okay. argument. So I'm going to give the economic argument. Okay. okay? So if, if, um, if when I, let's say, let's, let's ignore music and all this NFT stuff, right? The classic thing is selling tickets. When you, when you, when you're selling tickets to like a, you know, a, some uh, a basketball game, right? right? Very often what will happen is scalpers will come in and they'll buy the tickets so they can go and resell them later to people yes. who actually want to sit down and watch the show. So if a scalper bought the tickets from you, right? And they, there was a tax that was automatically enforced when they resold the tickets to somebody else, yeah. the scalper would pay you less, Right. Because Wait, they the have tax? to, because, so if it, let's say, let's say I have to pay 25% of what I make from you, uh, the, like you automatically enforce it. So let's not say how, let's just say you have a software system that does all right. this, right? When I, when I reassign the ticket to somebody else, I have to pay 25% of whatever I charge them back to you. Then I'm going to be willing to pay you less the first time that I scalp the tickets. Cause I know I'm going to get less at the end because I have to pay 25% to hand it off to somebody, right? That the, the, the tax that you pay when you resell the asset it flows through to the original value that the scalper is willing to pay. If the okay. scalper knows they're going to make less money because they have to resell it, then they're not going to be willing to pay as much. You, you are making some assumption about the velocity of resale here, which I think the point is like musicians are not like, they're not like tr constantly trying to churn their revenue. They're not like, they are, this right. is the reason music here's, NFTs yeah. will never here, happen. Here's the, here's the <laughs> basic shape of the argument I'm making, right? Is that like, if you, if you remove um, royalties, then people will be willing to pay more for the initial mint because the initial mint is going to be worth more, right? Like I can now sell uh, this thing for higher than I could originally sell it for. But, but yeah, you're right? assuming, so you're I'll be assuming to pay resale more. is happening fast enough that people care. Like there's some trade-off between like royalty and resale frequency, yeah. right? And like that's sort of like, I don't think for musicians it's like that for, even for artists, fine artists, it's not I mean, like why, that. Why would, but why would it for, matter what for the this, like, these like, collectibles it's clearly like people want to just constantly like beanie baby trade pokemon card trade i don't oh, I see yeah, if, you, I, if you're structuring it purely as like a donation and you're not actually yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. user reseller that's or, or if it's like you but know then in that case, the if it's like matter. fine fine art where it's like a tax harbor for someone else then like yeah the royalty is the only way that the artist ever gets paid yeah i think that's kind of the part that seems ridiculous to me which is the velocity of trading of nfts which is like should board apes be making 50 million dollars a year from people trading board apes like that seems pretty high um maybe it should be a per transaction fee or it should be you know kind of uh you know something nominal versus like you know the 10 percent that you but, see but when you buy merch at a i don't i don't know if you know if at a, like a music festival or a concert or something you're not going and trying to resell the merch immediately that's the problem with all these music NFTs. They're assuming that people like want to resell the rights to th it's like, why would I even own intellectual property or fake intellectual property and like immediately sell it? It only makes sense for these like weird collectible things. I just don't think it like for people who are making these things where they're like not trying to be businesses and they're just like, hey, we're our, we're in the, our own creator. I just don't think they care about the velocity. Well, I, I, I just don't think it makes a difference, right? Like, I think at the end of the day, if you get 2.5% of every future sale of this asset, right, then 
in, could in be economic expectation, in economic expectation, if you don't have those royalties, you'll make that two and a half percent more upfront. And you could decide that you want to spread out that two and a half percent over time by taking two and a half percent of whatever you're you sell assuming yeah, yeah. a user wants. No, 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 no. This, this, is, this is the difference between like something that's like strategy proof and sort of obviously strategy proof. Strategy proof means like I can bid my true valuation mm-hmm. and I actually get. The, but the problem with strategy proofness is these are these are like you know Nobel Prize winner um, Paul Milgram's terminology for this. Sure. Uh, strategy proof has this problem where I I still have to reason about if there's many rounds of this, which is the frequency argument. But I have to reason about the future rounds people's valuations when coming up with my valuations. Yeah. Obviously, strategy proof is I don't care. I just do it once and it works. And the problem is the NFT market has stratified itself into games that are like me really spending time thinking about the set of future value. That's different than like what, say, like a fine art person creator cares about. Sure. Right. And and so like I view the people who make board apes as like the same as someone who like works at Supreme. They don't really give a shit about the quality of the product they're making. It's not the quality of the product. It's literally just like, can I convince enough of this core group of speculators that there's a high enough velocity of re- of churn that it's worth investing in now? Versus something where it's like, I spent like my lifetime making this magnum opus and I just want to sell it once. Right. And like understanding that those are two extremely different notions of how people on both sides have valuations for these things sort of means that like you can't expect this is why the music NFT thing is a scam. Like it's like never going to work. Like, well, yeah. in the case well, of someone with a magnum opus, like you, the royalty doesn't matter because no one's going to resell it. No, but they resell once you're dead. <laughs> wait, wait, your estate dead, gets it. Right. Well, but wait, actually, uh, going to what you were saying about the uh, the Dallas Mavs tickets, I, I have a similar argument to what Jeroen was saying, mm. where when they're, when they're selling the initial ticket for something like, yeah, a concert or, or like a game or whatever, they set what the price is, right? And then the scalper finds what the actual, like, real Value price is. is. Yeah. 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 So, like, this is why, you know, NFT, like, this is why creators like NFTs, because they can have that direct relationship with people and they can capture that value rather than a lot of it going to the scalper. So just in your initial example, it like there's this kind of middle person that hopefully wouldn't exist at least as much in NFTs, right? Mm. So well, the middle person's open to you. <laughs> right now. Well, <laughs> right? <laughs> Arguably. Uh, yeah, but I don't think NFT or OpenSea is like buying, you know, the 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 collection that you're no, gonna no, drop no, it's and the then speculators, right? exactly. the speculators are the middle person. Yeah. Right. Unless um, they pull a Zillow. <laughs> Right. So then when you make this whole argument about like, oh, the initial person will want to pay, like, no, it doesn't because in the in this new world that we're talking about, we don't have these scalpers or, or idealists. Ideally, we wouldn't. You no, see what do. I'm saying? We have the speculators, right? I mean, that's why that's where you're making all the money from is the speculators. That's what the royalty who's going to pay the royalties. It's speculators who keep trading the NFTs with each other because they're all speculating. No, but I think a lot of people that buy in the initial, I mean, it's going to be a mix. It's going to be a mix of speculators and actual real fans that just want right. that thing. I mean, but the initial mints are like overwhelmingly, I mean, that's what like, we're talking about Solana going down because it's not normal people who are like running bots trying to get into the initial mint. It, yeah, yeah, but that's why I compare most NFTs are successful with like shitty shoe drops, which are equally botted. Yeah. Or like 100%. shitty watch drops. It's like the same group of like hype beast, like 20 to 30 year old people who love like love just gambling on because those are the this is the the, the 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 sort of more introverted version of the people waiting in line to buy sneakers. True, can you define hype beast for us uh you know basically any 
Anyone who like somehow finds a fad for particular materialistic items, mm. they pick a subset of goods that exist that are definitely bought and sold at a high enough velocity that they can they don't have to hold inventory for more than one day. And they try to buy the thing right when it drops and then immediately resell it. That's mm. a high piece. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, I kind of feel like they are the ultimate speculators. Sure, sure, sure. And, okay. and, and, and in some ways, okay, yeah, sure, those people like Bored Apes. I, I don't think they have any taste for fine art or like for music IP or like any, any of these things that are like assets that like the rest of the 99% of the world gives a shit about. Yeah. I mean, look, it's clear once there's an equilibrium, it's kind of like flashbots, right? It's actually very analogous to flashbots. We're like, before anyone's extracting MEV, we can all kind of gentlemen's agreement. Okay, we're going to enforce royalties. Royalties are good. There's a great story about it. And then suddenly somebody crosses the Rubicon and it's okay. Now one person is over the line, but like that person's bad. And we don't I, I, that I'm person. excited for this, not because of like, you know, the like crypto Twitter version of this world. It's like, oh, kill OpenSea, whatever. I don't think that's, that's no, like... OpenSea will absolutely capitulate. No, if no, they no, start no, losing no, no, market no. share because I, other people... I just think royalties, you just stratify the market into the like shag like... We want it's purely speculative NFTs but, versus okay, the ones the that have is. like long term. But that's where all the money is. No, right now creators will want to be on open. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I agree. I don't yes. think like everyone wants to be like catering to the bag supreme kid. Like that's just not. Sorry, really? Like, obviously, you don't, think OpenC, you don't think that's what OpenSea wants to do? I think they they grew off that, but I, I do think that like now they kind of like they're catering to a different demographic. Look at their website. Look at Suicide's website. Come on. I don't know. Yeah. I, I think that look if, at Magic Eden's website. Even compare the two of them. Clearly, one is going after like the ultimate speculative bubble people, sure. and the other is like trying to be like we have fine art on our. I, I think page. that I, I think what you're pointing out. I understand what the argument you're making, but I don't think that looking at the front page of the website, like the hype beasts you're talking about, don't look at the front page. It's the random person off the street who looks at the front page, and the random person off the street is very different than the average user. But there are there are wannabe hype beasts. And Magic Eden is clearly more attractive to them. Sure. sure. Right? Just like even aesthetically, if like I'm like, how does one become a hype beast? You just like watch too many skate videos. So you got to start your own course of like how to become a hype beast. You watch too many skate videos and you're like, okay, like, yeah, I really want to like buy all these skate shoes and resell them because like that skateboard's really expensive. And like, I think I can make money because like these people are idiots. And like, that's like the beginning of the cycle of doom. And so... Those people need, when they go to your website, need to be like, oh, like, wait, you're like trying to get sold at Sotheby's? Nah, this shit sucks. Like, those people are not going to like look at that site and say that. Mm -hmm. Whereas like Magic Eden's clearly catering to that. Mm -hmm. and, and I think like we're seeing the stratification of the NFT market with high quality assets versus low quality assets. Low quality has high frequency uh, churn. High quality is like, maybe it's more like fine art. Like and art blocks the, yeah. type. Yeah, exactly. And like, yeah. You know, unfortunately, they maybe got rugged by by Mr. Zoo, but uh, I think uh, and the fact that Three Arrows owns <laughs> such a large portion of the Art Block collection. Oh yikes! Um, but uh, or owns I don't know who owns those keys technically <laughs> right now. You know? Starry night. Okay, Someone owns yeah. those keys. Yeah. Um, but uh, but uh, you know, I, I think that that we're going to see the market stratify, mm. and like the bear market is the perfect time for that because like there's just. All the speculative stuff has to concentrate in the highest velocity exchange. And it will probably be bad for OpenSea short term. But I do think long term, their brand recognition probably means they can go high up market. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, unfortunately, I think like up market is Bored Apes. 
That's up market. Yeah, you said mm. talking about Sotheby's. I'm like, guess what's getting sold at Sotheby's? It's CryptoPunks. I know, I know, I know. I, look, 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 look. I'm not, I'm not disagreeing <laughs> with that. But my point is, the new these people, most of the volume you see right now is like not even. If you ignore board ape and crypto volume and CryptoPunk volume, it's like all these like random sh- Solana NFTs, which is why you can see Magic Eden beating OpenSea some days. Mm-hmm. And so, I think the reason that's true is because it's like, oh, like. The newcomer who like is like, I saw all these people get rich last year. Where can I go? But I only have 10 bucks. Oh, it's Solana NFTs. Yeah. What's the rate on OpenSea? 2.5%. Okay. Yeah, actually going back to a much earlier point that Tom made where he was like, oh, maybe it should be a fee or whatever. Like to my mind, again, a creator's perspective, I'm like, oh, well, if I create something and it becomes so huge, then like, yeah, percentage makes sense because then I should benefit mm. in this thing that's gotten so huge. So the idea that like you would that, you know, no matter what the value is, you would always get the same amount like that to me just doesn't make sense. Like it does make sense to me that it would be percentage based. Maybe it's also just a byproduct of the fact that, well, A, I think if you did it per transaction, way more enforceable um, versus, you know, trying to do it per exchange, which is like we don't can't do that right now. But I think it's also just the norm where we see royalties getting set around like 10 percent just feels super high. And that's why you see these NFT products that have insane treasuries because they're making money on all this, this volume. Um, another thing we talked about was like, you know, basically making them opt in and you can sort of see on chain who's paid, you know, royalties on their you know, asset and who isn't. And like, you know, maybe those kinds of assets or those people get something special, get higher quality. Those are the kinds of things that can, that can get sold at Sotheby's. And like, you know, the hype these people who are flipping on OpenSea, it's like, oh, you didn't pay, you know, your royalty on this crypto punk. We can't sell it at Sotheby's anymore. Oh yeah, yeah. Wow. I I actually I do agree that the, the moment moment <laughs> these things move to royalty, so it's free, all gentlemen's tainted, agreement. It's you've, gentlemen's you've, agreement. You've, no, 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 no. I tainted the, the crypto. I, I think, oh, I, think I think the upshot is these newcomer exchanges have a really good shot of like actually cannibalizing OpenSea. Probably not Magic Eden. Magic Eden seems like ruthlessly fine about cutting fees. Like I don't think they give a shit about creators at all, based on like the fact that they went to the ape coin community and were like. Hey, we'll let you pay an ape so to subsidize any user, and like they don't have to pay a royalty <laughs> just to get the ape usage up. Yeah, yeah. So like they're they're willing to do anything versus like OpenSea is like much more like trying to go highbrow. Like and it's- OpenSea is definitely yeah, I, I agree with that. OpenSea is is trying to hold on to their highbrow status, but I think they're they are they're benefiting a lot from the fact that yes, all the crypto not crypto funds the, uh, the the board apes are traded on OpenSea. And I th- I personally believe that if that changes, and you, they need you, to get aggressive on cutting, they fees, will. I think they will. You bring up a good point though about this idea that these collections actually are weirdly decentralized in some sense, and that they don't control their revenue stream. Because yes, during like the speculative bubble, they can like put up this like X percent uh, royalty, but when like the market crashes and people are just like, I'm not going to pay it then the treasury of this thing, like suppose all the nouns were traded like on Pseudoswap with no fee, like the nouns treasury has just hit its peak then. It's never, it's never earning any more money. I mean, they're, they're still selling nouns. Yeah, yeah. Nouns is weird. I, nouns <laughs> yeah, is like, I, I meant not, not, someone who has like a fixed yeah, yeah, yeah. size. Yeah, yeah. There, there's kind of this interesting thing of like what happens to these projects if like they become abandoned after the royalty goes away and, and you know. Well, I think Board Ape like shows you the model, which is that like it's, it's well, like, you got to keep launching new shit and airdropping. Yeah, you gotta, you, well, that's, I think that's exactly right. It's like it's. I mean, if you if you consider these things to basically be like luxury goods companies, right? It's like okay, you created one line of watches. Okay, it's important that those watches trade for a high value, but you got to keep 
launching more watches. There's more people in the world. Also, there's this weird thing of like, if you make it to a certain point, you just get other brands basically using your address list as a customer yeah, list, true. like that's Tiffany's. True. Like the <laughs> Tiffany airdrop to yeah. CryptoPunk people is crazy. Yeah, which is, you know... Uh, I mean, look, both people are equally tacky, so I get why that's like the good customer list. But. Yikes. Yikes. You yeah. know, I have to admit, I thought that they were cool. I was like, <laughs> you know, I'm not even one of these PF... Well, no, I mean, Laura's trying to get Tiffany's as a sponsor for the show. It's so funny. I was about to say, I'm not even one of those PFP people, but I have a PFP. <laughs> Which I totally forgot. It's Crypto Coven, of course. Um, I remember. My favorite. Um, but yeah, that was actually something that I thought was kind of interesting and cool. Um, but I don't know. Do you feel like real world, uh, like, yeah, assets or whatever you want to call them based off of uh, these digital things, these di digital NFTs, you think they're going to become a thing? Or is that just like, because it just feels like it creates a whole host of... Yeah, I, f yeah. I find it kind of tacky. Yeah, it's just real cringe but it it, it it maps to miami so it's like okay great like yeah there's a court you literally figured out yeah, you literally right. figured out the sales tactic in miami which is like oh you just go to the like some hotel and you're like hey put my product in your hotel and like you, that's how you do all your marketing because like it's like the people who care about that aesthetic will buy your product yeah because they see it at xyz place this is the same thing it's like oh now as a crypto punk owner you get to like get free stays at some pretty I don't know. It's just like you have to have like <laughs> like taste that's only dictated strictly by dollar values of things for you to like care about this. Yeah, it's a very it's a very like TikTok house approach to like thinking about what NFT status is. I don't know. Yeah. No, no, I get it. But I do think that there are some brands that yeah, they're like definitely I think the benefit is more for the traditional brand. Like there were a few that did um Super Bowl ads where they had like NFT stuff in their ads and you know, I feel like that was for the traditional brand to get more cred. Mm. I mean, so. it's crazy yeah. that Tiffany's got $12 million of revenue for like ostensibly what costs them a little bit of PR and like free customer list of like people who are guaranteed to buy it. Sure. That's like insane. Yeah. A great move by them. Great move yeah, by them. kind yeah. of genius. And I bet you we're going to see a lot of cop like other so, luxury uh, brands. Have you copy. seen the, the Tog Heuer NFT watch? Um, they have this watch with a screen on it that I'm impressed by the tech that they were able to get this out so quickly, but it basically will like sync with your Ethereum wallet and verify that you own an NFT and put your NFT on your uh, watch face. Oh my god! Uh, wow! Oh boy! I, I love people wearing signs that yeah, say yeah. "Mug me right now." Yeah. You know, it's <laughs> yeah, like exactly. that's literally. What... Yeah, I mean, I mean, look, that, that's what wearing a Rolex is too, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, it's not it's not yeah. in principle different, but it just it's a it's a um, it does feel like you're you're going on the wrong side of the aesthetic. You know, it's like... Yeah, it's how a, did we go from cypherpunks to shitbags? Like, you know, somehow that's like... Yeah, the, it, it hey, happened, if I ever write a book about about this industry, that's the title yeah, of it. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is a bit douchey. Like, you know, anyway. Whatever. Now, all this stuff is arbitrary. Who the hell knows? Maybe maybe five years from now, we're... we're this is why totally I'm pulling for the fine art stuff. Because at least there, it's like, you know, people put thought and, you know, you really, really like had to like, make some social commentary about the world when they created something some versus some right. social commentary about like, people hey, there's a lot of people. <laughs> better social commentary than apes. Apes are, ape, apes are literally... I don't like, know. We've been talking about apes a lot, you know? That's Just because the marketing is, is good doesn't, right now, doesn't mean it's a good social commentary. Look, I mean, a lot of, look, a lot of NFT art is cool. Most of it is not social commentary. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, look at like Fuck Render or something. Like, that's, it's really cool. It's not really social commentary.
I guess the, I'm just not like the, personally that into that. So, I, I, I mean, did, that, that's, what, that's where we get. All right, all right, all right. I did Karen have two like, like real artists on my show that made NFT collections, and their art was so interesting because it really engaged with blockchain technology in fascinating ways. Like one of them took her 23andMe uh, genetic or DNA, whatever, and um, turned it into a hash or something, and then um, put it. I think it was like this was so early. It was like back in 2013 or 2014. She put it on a fork of. Uh, it's like do- Doge party or, so, or, or it's like some counterparty Doge mix up. I don't even know mashup. Um, it like doesn't exist anymore. And the title was My Soul. Mm. Ooh, <laughs> I thought it was funny. Ooh. Or like, um, yeah, the uh, Mitchell Chan, who uh, is an NFT artist, he did uh, some of the first NFTs before the ERC seven twenty one standard. His was um, he found an artist like a traditional artist, Eve Klein, who he believes, actually made the first NFTs, but they were with paper. And what it was, was um, he had this like big exhibit and there were like lines around the block in Paris and people walked into the gallery and um, there would, it was just like empty, (laughs) but there would be like numbers, like number one, number two. And like you could buy one of the, it, it was called like immaterial zones of pictorial sensibility or something like that. And you could buy one of these and what you would get is a certificate of your authentic ownership of this. So when Mitchell found this, it's like from the 1950s or whatever, he was like, oh my God, this is the first art NFT. So he made the actual digital NFT version of this in like August, 2017. And this was like, you know, before CryptoKitties, whatever. And um, the funny thing is, so Eve Klein said that um, you could just buy the certificate, but if you wanted to experience the true apotheosis of the artistic experience, then... He would take you to the River Seine and, um, oh, and sorry, you had to pay for your um, yeah, digital zone of whatever it was called, immaterial zone. Anyway, you had to pay for it in gold. And so if you wanted the true apotheosis of the artistic experience, then Eve Klein would go with you to the River Seine and you would have to um, uh, throw your certificate into the river and he would throw half of the gold you gave him into the river. And then that would be like, the true artistic experience. So when Mitchell nice. this, is, created, this is like Marina Abramovich, but like, you know, yeah, 50 so when, years ago. So when Mitchell Amazing. created his um his uh NFT version of it in the smart contract, you know, you had to pay him ETH or whatever, right? But if you ever burned your um NFT, which you know, he like somehow the contract would see that or whatever, and it would trigger the burning of half of the ETH that you gave him. So he like created nice. that aspect of it into his end. Anyway, and the point is, all I'm saying is like these kinds of art entities interest me so much, mm. and they're like so different from yeah the PFPs or whatever. Which again, I have a crypto coven, so I'm sort of a fan <laughs> of those as well. But um, but like that kind of true NFT art, where it's like in conversation with art history, and there is like it doesn't have to be social commentary, but it's like engaging with the technology in a way that's like super creative and like makes you think. Like I really like those. Mm. Well, so speaking of true art, we got a last piece of news for the week, which is that biggest news of the week, which is that Dragonfly Dragonfly, uh, just rebranded. So we are, uh, we're now, (laughs) we used to be called Dragonfly Capital, we're now just Dragonfly, that's the biggest news of the week, obviously. Um, I mean, I think you guys just reduced yourself to three ASCII symbols. Right now, yeah. you have a logo that's a, a that ASCII that's emoji. That's true. That's true. It's pretty, which is, I thought was pretty yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. Good. We it's got good. a lot good. of shit. we got a lot of it because it looks very similar to TracerDAO, mm. which recently got acquired Dow? by Mycelium. Exactly. exactly. No, TracerDAO is great. TracerDAO is great. Um, but they they used to have a logo that looked a lot like ours, but it's one weird Greek symbol 
Mm. Whereas ours is like, you know, carrot and then green and carrot. Um, anyway, we also announced that we acquired a fund called Metasable Capital, which is the fund I used to be at when I started investing. Um, and so we now, I just wanted to say that to everybody on the show. Yeah, I have to say. Do, like, do you guys have like a, a gang symbol? <laughs> Not yet. <but> we, may, <laughs> we, may, we, may, we may have to invest I'm trying, in I'm trying, I'm trying to like so get it, get it. Pretty good. <laughs> We have to do that in the future. It, it, it's because um, it's almost hand representable. That's what it is. I it know. Is. That's, that's, the, that's the idea. It's very versatile. You would it's be versatile. a good shadow puppeteer. Um, yeah, no, this brought up for me like so many memories of kind of when I, you know, was covering this like earlier on because, you know, there was a time when it was like Metasumo was this sort of secretive thing. Yes. And yeah, and I don't think I even knew you at that time. And like later on, I found out that you used to work there. But um, yeah, there like I, shoot, is this? Um, I'm trying to think. Yeah, this is what eventually became my first Forbes cover story. Where oh, really? It was the one, I don't know if you guys remember the one where I put Olaf on the cover, Olaf Carlson oh, being yes, a polychain. Yes, yes, I remember. Yeah. Um, because you know, you could see the ICO thing happening and like all these crypto hedge funds were popping up and whatever. And um Metastable was like the oldest uh, you know, crypto hedge fund. But then um for various reasons I went with Polychain um as like the well, Olaf was always a more public, right? Whereas yeah. He had better hair than all of you. Well, Naval has pretty good hair. Olaf still has better hair. Oh, yeah. Olaf, that's Sorry, Naval. He, he does play better on a cover. I think Naval plays better on Twitter. But, yes. Um, Naval was one of the co-founders of Metastable, and so when we acquired Metastable, you know, it's, it's, it's a super OG fund. So it was founded in 2014. Yes. They were like in the Ethereum pre-sale. They did Zcash and Tezos and Algorand and Cosmos, Definity. Like, you know... A huge number of the layer ones that have been very, very successful. And, and then when I was there, I did Avalanche, did Near, um, you know, Filecoin, Starflare, a bunch of stuff. So it's a, it's a very storied fund. And so, it, you know, it's, it's, at least for us, it's been pretty special to take it over. But yeah, it used to be a very shadowy fund back in the very early days of crypto. And uh, so we're now taking it into the Dragonfly family. Anyway, we're super over time. So we need to wrap up. Um, but once again, thank you everybody for listening and to Rune. You are in very big trouble, and uh, I hope the audience finds it in the yeah, book. I, I like to think of it as, as everyone got a blessing; they got extra time to like talk <laughs> about me. Exactly. Well, we did, but the audience was just stuck yeah, with the, the stuck. static well, link. Thank you, everybody, for listening to us. Another episode of Shopping Block. We'll be back to you uh, in a couple weeks. Yes. Thanks, everybody.